Ivor or Jack Bauer or think of an old Alfred Hitchcock mystery or Indiana Jones. There's a problem to be solved, a mystery to uncover. And just when time is running out, the hero finally sees things from a different angle and boom, everything makes sense. It all falls into place. You see it in the movies all the time and today it's going to happen to us. This is our moment for things to fall into place. This has been a a critical season for our church, a crucial chapter, and and maybe the most crucial part of it is recognizing that as we draw closer and closer to having a senior pastor in place, it's not the end of a journey, but it's the beginning of one. God has given us a moment. It feels like a really long time, but it's a a moment in God's perspective, and and, and the moment in this life of this church family, and we're hopefully using that moment to to grow, to develop ourselves, like like flatbed trucks we talked about last Sunday, to develop ourselves for what God has next. And just like the hero of the movie, today we're going to look at the situation from a different angle. We're going to unlock something critical for each of us and for our next steps. That's what we're going to do this morning. And as we wrap up the final week of our study of the book of Hebrews, we're going to go back over some ground that we've already covered. But just like the hero in whatever your favorite movie is, we're going to suddenly see some of these passages we've looked at in a fresh light. We're going to have our own aha moment that will propel our church forward in a fresh way. So let's review where we've been in this series. Hopefully you'll recall that we've been exploring the book of Hebrews through these series of warnings. That's how the author of Hebrews organizes his own message. At the beginning of the series, we talked about how this letter to the Hebrews was written to a church that had had some great experiences. Uh, They were a mature church in a lot of ways, but things were not all great. They faced some challenges, and as you know, anytime things get hard, people leave. They just throw in the towel. That's what happened to them. Some folks had left their church. A lot of other folks were thinking about it. Things were just getting hard for them. And in their case, they were facing persecution, even imprisonment, all because of their faith in Jesus. So some of them wanted to just walk away. And and the letter is called Hebrews because the the church was made up of a group of Jewish Christians. They wanted to walk away, go back to being Jewish. That was easier. Everybody knew that being a Jew meant nobody would really bother you, nobody would pay any attention to you. Everybody knew what being a Jew was all about. It wasn't weird like being a Christian is. It wasn't threatening to anyone. So they thought if they could just go back to the way things were, go back to what was comfortable and familiar, then everything would be okay. Because being different is hard. Taking a stand for Jesus is especially hard. Sticking your neck out means you're likely to get your head knocked off. It's hard. So, so many of them wanted to just go back to, to normal, whatever normal is, back to the way things were. But some of them knew that was not a good solution. They knew they couldn't really walk away from Jesus, so they decided to just do the next best thing, to just lay low, to stay quiet. They decided to stick with the church, but they got a little lax in their commitment. They got lackadaisical in the things that they knew they should be engaged in, things that would really represent Jesus to the world. They decided to just slip back, blend in with the wallpaper, and they wouldn't get hurt. They stopped trying to reach out to outsiders. They stopped growing in their faith. They just stopped. And the author of the book of Hebrews, he, he sees what's happening. He writes to this church with a very passionate and, and pastoral appeal. He knows them. He knows what they're up against. And he sees what's happening, and he cares enough to help. And so he writes this letter, this very pastoral letter, and he encourages them. He warns them. He has a couple of big goals with this letter. 
One goal is simply to, to remind them, to elevate Jesus as superior to all the other things that they're trying to choose. This word superior or better shows up 12 times in this letter. There's only 13 chapters, so it's a key idea. His second goal is, is to call them to, to faithfulness and to obedience. Not running away, not fading away, but leaning in, remaining faithful even when it's hard. Pursuing obedience in the face of challenges and setbacks. And the final goal, the final reason for this letter is to prepare the church for what comes next. To position them to face the future with a renewed faith and renewed focus. And so this morning as we come to the end of our study, we're going to look back at where we've been. We're going to see things from a fresh perspective. A perspective that gives us uh, uh, encouragement to continue on in faithfulness. And one that gives us encouragement to face what comes next with a renewed energy. So let's take a moment to look back. We talked about the danger of drift. We talked about the strong temptation that we all face to to drift away from Jesus and towards the things that are easier, but really just lesser substitutes. And we talked about one of the big reasons the author warns us not to drift. He tells us not to drift because God has given us spiritual gifts. He's given each of us gifts that we can use to serve each other and to grow each other. Your gifts help me grow, and my gifts help you grow. That's how it's supposed to work. Our gifts are designed to help each other become better. So if you drift, or if I drift, then we're not just removing ourselves from the body. We're taking away other people's chances to grow. Nobody drifts alone. The danger is not just to ourselves, but it's to others. God has designed the church and gifted the church so that we all work together. In fact, all the passages in the Bible that talk about spiritual gifts, just like Paul shared earlier this morning, they talk about being one body. Even though it's made up of a lot of different parts, we're all one body. That's how God designed us. So if one body part drifts away, that's bad for the whole body. So when the the book of Hebrews warns us about the danger of drift... It's not just for our sake, but it's for the sake of each of us. Drifting is doubly dangerous then. Dangerous for the one who drifts and dangerous for all of us in the body. Dangerous because we're denied the opportunities that your gifts give us to help grow. And one of the big ways to avoid drift is simply investing in our own spiritual gifts. It's counterintuitive, perhaps, but we avoid drifting by investing in what God is doing here. The more we feel the need to drift, the more we should engage in what's happening here. I was talking to somebody last week, a person who needed some counseling, and they told me they'd really begun to to lose their faith, to lose their confidence in God. And my counsel to them was not to drift and engage in the church, just like we learned about with the danger of drift. We've got to exercise gifts and engage with other people. So that's one thing that we learned. We also talked in this series about the danger of disbelief. We talked about how we let evil into our hearts. I had a couple of different people tell me after hearing that sermon, they, they think of me every time they drive on that roundabout on Titan. I don't think that's a good thing. I don't know, but... But we can all fall prey to the danger of disbelief. We all suffer from the same condition, spiritual blindness. And yet the the cure for our sickness, the prescription that brings cure to the evil in our hearts, comes from each other. Hebrews 3 tells us, encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. That's the prescription for our spiritual blindness. Encourage each other. We need each other. 
We talked about the danger of despising. We talked about the the work of Christ on our behalf. Instead of despising that, dismissing it, instead of living in a way that minimizes the perfecting work of Jesus on our behalf, we talked about responding to it. Respond to it with with confidence, with confession, with community. And it's that, that third response, the community response, that I want to highlight this morning. Hebrews 10 tells us, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. So one of the key ways we respond to God's work in our lives is by encouraging each other. One of the key ways we respond to God's work in our lives is by continuing to gather together. So when you put these warnings together, when we look at things from a different angle... We see something amazing. We have our own aha moment. We find out that at just the right moment for us, we find out that the solution to our challenges was right in front of our faces all along. When we look at these warnings with fresh eyes today, it turns out that the antidote to every warning is us. Our church, our faith family, gathered together, each other, that's the way we navigate through these dangers. We encourage each other. We continue to gather together. We provoke each other on towards love and towards good works. We exercise our own spiritual gifts for the sake of others. That's the key to avoiding drift, to avoiding disbelief, to avoiding despising all the other warnings. The antidote to every warning is us. And if we are the antidote, you in my life and me in your life, if we're the solution to keep all of us growing in Christ then that means our gathering together becomes increasingly important. Coming together is not just a good idea, but it's something very, very important. And that leads us to to two key ideas I want to camp out on this morning. The first idea is that church is critical. And that means also that you are critical to church. So church is critical. It's a critical piece for each and every one of us. You can't really encourage one another, engage one another, support one another if you're not gathering with one another on a regular basis. And you don't need me to tell you that church attendance is less and less important for people. That's true for all of us. I mean, there's been so much said about the uh, younger generations, uh, millennials and Generation Z, their lack of ability to commit to things. But research also tells us it's not just limited to young people. Uh, a Pew study from just a couple of years ago talks about the fact that baby boomers are uh, reducing their church attendance, especially after they retire. They kind of retire from church as well. As you know, here this month of October, we, we use it to gather information about our faith family, those highlight cards. And one of the reasons that we have you fill it out every single Sunday is because it helps us understand attendance patterns. It helps us serve the the body more effectively, knowing that information. In fact, you might be surprised to learn, on average, all over the country, the national average, folks who attend church, they come 1.5 times per month. Uh, That's the national average. And thanks to the info that we get from uh, Highlight Cards, we know that's true here at Trinity, too. On average, that's how often you're here, 1.5 times a month. You probably already knew that. But when you stop and think about that statistic... Uh, that the average person who attends Trinity comes 1.5 times a month. I think it's pretty interesting because there's many of you, myself included, who are here almost every single Sunday, right? So folks are really swaying the average one direction. They're attending way more than 1.5 times a month, which means there's folks swaying the average on the other end of that spectrum that are here way less than one and a half times per month. 
And I recognize this morning my message is for, for both those groups and, and all the rest of us in between. And for the record, I recognize that a message delivered in church on a Sunday morning might not actually reach all of the people who aren't here, but that's God's problem. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to trust him to get his word out to whoever needs to hear it. But regardless of our own attendance or lack of attendance, it doesn't change the fact that church is critical. It's critical for us. And understanding that leads us to the very important concept of church membership. Those are almost dirty words in some circles. Church membership is an idea that gets a bad rap. Folks would say it's not even in the Bible. It's just some you know, creative pastor's way of coercing people to come to church week after week. But that's not true. It's a solidly biblical idea. I don't have all the time this morning to go into all the biblical evidence that points to the validity of membership. I have put some passages in your notes. You can look those up. If you're curious, you can ask me questions. But there's, there's one passage that comes right from the book of Hebrews that's worth highlighting. This comes from Hebrews 13. It says this. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that you can do this with joy and not with grief, uh, for that would be unprofitable for you. So this is a a command. It comes from the final chapter of Hebrews. And there's a couple of quick things to notice here. The the passage tells us uh, to obey our leaders and submit to them. And so if there's no such thing as church membership, then which leaders do we obey and submit to? Do you obey the leaders here, or do you obey the leaders at some other church in town, or the, you obey the pastor that you listen to online, right? So right away, it's clear there's an assumption that the author of Hebrews is writing this to people who have joined up a particular church body with a particular set of leaders, elders. You submit yourselves to this body that you're a member of. Now, the second thing to notice about membership in this passage is, is simply from a, from a strictly pastoral perspective. As I read this passage, I, as your pastor, I see that I'm going to be accountable for some souls. Now, does that mean I'm accountable for every soul in the Walla Walla Valley? If that's true, I'm doomed. The understanding, clearly, is that I'm accountable for the souls of this church body. Membership is implied here. There has to be some way of knowing which souls go with which leaders. And the other passages I listed there in your notes, they're even clearer about membership in some cases. So, so church membership is an important idea. And church is critical, but that means membership is critical. But what are the reasons that, that church membership is treated so loosely, and one of the reasons people are so indifferent to it, is because it's not like membership in other things. So to help us understand the real value of church membership, we first need to understand what church membership is not. And then we can understand what it is, and why it's so important. When I was a young person, I got caught up in a cult. Uh, You probably didn't know that about me. But yeah, I've got a history of being sucked into a cult organization. Now, I managed to to extricate myself from this group after a while, but it was not easy. Uh, For a time in my youth, I was a member of an organization called the Columbia House. Uh, I started very simply. Uh, I was kind of desperate. And they made me an offer that was really too good to turn down. They told me that I could have eight CDs or cassettes, my choice, for just a penny. Well, for a young person who didn't have a job, this was very tempting. Something I wanted, they were willing to give it to me. All I had to do was join their club. And then I had to do a few other things that they didn't tell me about until later on. Well, maybe you were a member of the Columbia House Music Club or the rival gang, the BMG Music Club, and... 
just to be really clear, these are not cults. I was never in a cult. I don't want that rumor going around. But, uh, but these organizations, BMG, Columbia House Records, they both operated the same kind of way. You would get the initial deal. You would join the club, and then they would change the terms of membership on you. You'd have to do this or buy that to get the next deal, and then they would change them again to get the next deal. Well, that's not what church membership is like. I mean, sadly, some churches kind of try to offer, uh, operate in that same way, sucking you in and then doing everything they can to get you to stay, but that's not what a healthy church looks like. Church membership is not a deal that's dependent on you fulfilling a certain set of obligations, making sure you pay your bill on time, that kind of a thing. So church membership is not asking and answering the question, what do I have to do? That's not church membership. There's not a, a, a legalistic obligation where you have to show up a certain amount of times, or you have to give a certain amount, or, or serve in a certain way, and then you get perks and benefits. It's not how it works. It's not a get this for that kind of an arrangement. That's not church membership. Now, some people would argue that I'm still in a cult. Not, not because of here, that's not what I mean, but I traded my music club membership for a Costco membership. And Costco is great. They have everything you didn't know you needed. Our family shops there a lot. One of the things that's great about Costco is they have all kinds of stuff there. I mean, food, of course, in bulk, but also clothing. You could buy a car from there, or you could buy just the tires. You can get appliances. You can get glasses or contact lenses, dental insurance, hearing aids. It's an amazing thing to be a member of Costco. You find yourself constantly asking I wonder what else Costco has to offer me, right? What, what else can my membership get me? Well, unfortunately, too many of us walk into church with that same kind of mindset. What does this church have to offer me? We want to be church consumers, not participants. And when one church doesn't have what we want, well, we'll just look for it at another church. But Costco membership is not the same as church membership. Costco members, they pay to get services, to get pampered, to get all their wishes fulfilled. And even though a lot of church attenders will walk into church looking for that kind of treatment, that's not what church membership is all about. Church membership is not a full buffet to be consumed, asking yourself, what do I want to get? So those two questions are at the heart of what church membership is not. But if church is critical, critical to our own spiritual lives, critical to others, then what is church membership? Well, perhaps the best, most overlooked passage that helps us understand what church is all about comes from the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about spiritual gifts, and in particular, he talks about the gifts of pastoring and teaching. So he's basically answering the question, what is the role of a pastor or teacher in the church? And this is what he says, Ephesians chapter 4. And he, Jesus... He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. So this is a critical passage about church because it tells us the the role of a pastor and really all of our spiritual gifts is designed to equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry. See, in the Old Testament, The role of the priest was to do ministry on behalf of the people, making sacrifices for the sake of other people. In the New Testament church, the role of the pastor or the teacher is to equip others to do the work of ministry. My job is to help you do ministry. 
When I was a kid, I have a very distinct memory of the encyclopedia salesman coming to our house. I can remember when my family bought the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's a huge collection of information, everything you could think to ask about. It was all uh, there. There was an article about it. Uh, Everything from history to science, everything in between, it was all there. No matter what the topic was, some expert had written an article, and you could go to the encyclopedia and learn from the experts. And then came computers, and in the early days of home computers, a new kind of encyclopedia was launched. Instead of a a thousand-pound set of books, all the information was on one CD-ROM. I'm talking about Microsoft Encarta. Uh, The entire encyclopedia on a CD you could just stick right into your computer. And Microsoft, they hired a small army of writers and supervisors and professors to verify information, people with advanced degrees, carefully researched information, a team of writers compiled it, a group of editors corrected it, and Microsoft published it. You wouldn't need to wrestle your way through 26 volumes to find what you're looking for. Now you had all the world's information on one CD-ROM. It very quickly replaced the Britannica as the number one encyclopedia in the world. The encyclopedia was digital, accessible. Well, then a few years later, the whole game changed again. Encarta decreased in popularity. It was eclipsed by another encyclopedia. Do you know what the most popular encyclopedia in the world is today? It's not Britannica. It's not Encarta. It's Wikipedia. Here's the interesting thing. Wikipedia, they didn't hire professors and experts to write the content. They didn't build a giant staff to make sure that everything was correct. You know who writes the articles on Wikipedia? You and me, just everybody. No professionals, just everyday people who contributed. And you don't even have to pay for the software. It's free. Wikipedia, the the web-based encyclopedia, put Microsoft Encarta and put Encyclopedia Britannica out of business. Well, the church is a lot like Wikipedia. That's why this passage in Ephesians is critical to helping us understand church membership. It's not a matter of what do I have to do, uh, what obligations do I have to fulfill in order to get in here. It's not a matter of what can I get out of this place, how can I come here and just get all my needs met. It's a matter of gathering together so that we get equipped for the work of ministry and gathering together so that we equip others for the work of ministry. It's all of us serving all of us. When you go to Costco, you don't know any of the other folks there. You don't go to Costco to help somebody else stock their pantry. In fact, they're just in your way as you're trying to do your own shopping. But the church is not like that. The church is a gathering of people who are there for the sake of each other, to be mutually equipping each other. We're partners in this. In fact, one church I know of, they don't have membership at their church. They call it partnership because the idea of membership implies all these passive consumer kinds of things. But partnership instantly communicates that we're signing up for active involvement. We're partners in mission, advancing the gospel together. Ultimately, that's what church membership is. It's partnership, each person playing their part in the mission of making disciples. So our goal is not gathering just to try to suck more people in, or our goal, it's it's going. It's sending each other out on mission, coming together to be encouraged and grow, and going out. We're partners in mission. So the church is critical, which means membership is critical. Each of us are partners in mission. We're not passive consumers. 
And if we're all partners, not passive, that means not only is the church critical, but it means you are critical to the church. That's the next key idea I need us to understand this morning. The antidote to every warning is us. You're a critical piece. You've probably heard the old uh, children's song, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. That's true. Those are healthy practices. But throughout the New Testament, whenever spiritual growth is talked about, it's always in a corporate context, gathering together, growing together. We need each other to grow. The antidote to every warning is us. If you're not engaged in the lives of other people, then it's really just a matter of time before you stop reading your Bible. And even if you did manage to keep up healthy spiritual practices, if you're not involved in the lives of other people, you're just praying for yourself. You're not engaging with other people. Church is critical. It's a critical piece, and you are a critical part of church. The antidote to every danger is us. We're all partners on mission. And I want to leave us with one very simple takeaway, one simple way we can put into action our partnership as we live into this reality. Uh, If you were here a few weeks ago, you know that I gave everybody a copy of this small book called How to Walk Into Church. And uh, if that was not one of your 1.5 monthly visits, you didn't get a copy of that, you can pick another one up out in the foyer at the Guest Services Center today. But I'll just tell you, in case you haven't read the book yet, uh, I'll just tell you how to walk into church. I'll, I'll ruin it for you right here. The author of this book says the best way to walk into church is by praying about where to sit. Such a simple idea. You walk into church praying about where to sit. It's such a simple idea, but it's so, so helpful because it helps us all become partners on mission. First of all, because you come into this gathering with an attitude of prayer, acknowledging that you're partnering with God and submitting yourselves to him. That's good. But then you pray specifically about where to sit, meaning you're putting yourself in a mindset that's focused on other people. How can I serve or encourage another person? If you're praying specifically about where to sit, it it breaks us out of that consumer mindset, that mindset that keeps us focused only on ourselves, right? So maybe you feel led to sit next to a person who needs some encouragement, needs a little extra fellowship, needs some, some arm around their shoulder, right? When you pray about where to sit, you're trusting that what we do at church really matters, that God has something important for each of us to do. In particular, he's got somebody he wants you to sit next to, to talk with, to listen to, to pray with, and encourage. So when you walk into church the right way, you come ready to equip and be equipped by other people. We come in as partners in God's work. So we walk into church praying about where to sit. Church is critical. And you are critical to this church. God has positioned each of us together to partner with him, partner with each other on his mission of making disciples in the valley. Let's do it together. Let me pray for us. God, we want to be your partners. Uh, It's an amazing thing to think about the fact that you don't need anything, and yet you choose to partner with us. You choose to use us in your work, to use us to encourage each other, to equip each other for the work of ministry. What an amazing thing it is to think about. And I'm so uh, grateful to see already over these past few weeks to see people uh, uh, taking this idea to heart, sitting in different places 
And uh, I know you're going to use that. I know you're going to continue to use us, continue to use this church as we soon launch into a new chapter in this faith family, in the life of this faith family. And I pray that you would use these, these uh, simple ideas, these simple but critical ideas about what it means to be a member here, what it means to partner with you on your mission of making disciples. Use all those things in our lives to equip us, to equip other people, and to reach this valley with the good news of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are going to continue our worship service today.